0: Revelation 17. And actually, I hope you guys are ready. We're actually doing 17 and 18, okay? A lot of Bible this morning. You guys ready for this? It's gonna be a little bit more reading than normal, but hey, I'm just encouraged... Jesus is not on vacation. He is on his throne. He's gonna speak to us in his word. Are you ready? I'm excited for this. I hope you are. I'm actually gonna start with one verse in chapter 18. I'll pray for us and we'll get started. So chapter 18, verse four, this is the heart of these two chapters. This is Jesus speaking. He says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So, Jesus, we just right now, we want to humble ourselves. We want to submit ourselves to your word. Your word is a sword, Lord. It's sharp, and you are a good surgeon, a good physician. And we just want to submit ourselves to you, Lord. We want to trust what you say, God. We want to obey it, Lord. The Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and you would speak and minister through your word, God. That this wouldn't be the ideas of any person, Lord, but your very word. Come and meet with us, Holy Spirit. Clear our minds and our attention, Lord. Wake us up. I pray against any fogginess, any schemes of the enemy to keep us distracted, to keep us from seeing you clearly, Lord. Open up the eyes of our heart to behold you this morning, Jesus. Get us ready for all that you have. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we just finished chapter 16 last week. That was pretty heavy. It was the sixth are the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Um, And now 17 and 18, they happen pretty much at the same time. And this is a specific judgment of God. So more judgment, more wrath. We're almost through that, but these two chapters are the judgment of God on sin, not just individually, um, not just Satan or death, but his judgment on sin as it affects culture, as it affects a whole system. And that system is going to be represented by this a great prostitute or Babylon the great. And, and it was important enough for Jesus that, that this destruction, this defeat, this downfall of Babylon gets two whole chapters. So just to be faithful, I think it's just going to help us to, to do both of those this morning. So hope you're ready. We're going to actually read through uh, both chapters. We're going to just take pieces um, we're going to break it in a lot of parts. So we're going to start off. There's going to be a lot of characters, a lot of symbolism. It may be confusing. You're going to be like, what is happening here? Um, and, and even know this, history, church history isn't sure exactly what all these symbols are referring to, but they are sure what they mean. And so we're not exactly sure who Babylon is or who the beast is or who the people and or the whole, they're going to get all these symbols and it may be a little bit confusing and we're going to work through that, but at the end of the day, we know that Jesus wins, he's gonna defeat evil in all of its forms, and he's gonna come back for his church. So that's, that's the big picture. So I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things as we work through them. So let's get started. Verse one through six, we'll start off. Chapter 17, one through six, here we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, "'Come, I will show you the judgment "'of the great prostitute.'" Who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So the first kind of character, the main character in these two chapters is the, the great prostitute, Babylon the great. And we're going to just kind of break it down a little bit. What are the symbols? What do they mean? What's it communicating? So in verse one, she's called the great prostitute. It says she's committed sexual immorality with the kings of the earth and the dwellers of the earth have become drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Okay. So what is this? Is this literally like a woman who the kings are committing adultery with? It's not Often in the Bible, when it talks about sexual immorality, what it's referring to, the deeper truth is committing adultery against God, right? Sexual immorality is many times, it's just a euphemism. It's a symbol of a deeper adultery because when we, God is the one who deserves all our attention, all of our worship. But when we give that attention and worship to anything else, it's like we're committing adultery on God and so her first name is this great prostitute. She's leading the kings and the people of the earth to, to not worship God, but to commit adultery with him uh, against or leading them astray to commit adultery with her. So that's the first sin. That's the first thing that's marking who this prostitute is. The second thing we can notice, look at verse 4. It's talking about what she's wearing. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And she's holding in her hand a golden cup. So you may be familiar with those symbols. That's like royalty, scarlet, purple is a royal colors and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So she's obviously rich, like wealth is a part of who she is. And it's actually, it's a part of how she leads people astray to commit adultery with God, right? That is maybe one of the greatest temptations, the love of money is the root of all evil, the Bible says. So she uses the allure of wealth to lead the people of the world astray to commit adultery against God. And in verse five, it's pretty heavy. It's, it calls her the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And, and so it describes that she has this golden cup just full of these abominations. It's kind of like, what does that mean? We don't really know, but we know that she's the mother of the earth's abominations. So if there was a father of the earth's abominations, who would that be? that would be Satan, obviously. So in some sense, she is the mother and, and she is kind of how we would, what we would refer to as the world. Right? Like we know as Christians, there's three major enemies. It's sin. We know that our own sin, our flesh, Satan. We know Satan. But then the world is one we can forget about. The world in the Bible is a major enemy of of the people of God. And the world is kind of like sin as a collection, sin as a whole. How sin affects an entire culture, it affects entire structures. Like we see that, you know, in, in maybe a system of slavery. Where it's just, it's, it's the norm, it's how things are done, it's this entire system, an unjust system. That's the world. And so she is the mother of earth's prostitutions, the mother of earth's abominations. She's, she's representing to us sin as this giant structure, as it affects an entire culture. And then we see in verse 5, she's also called Babylon the Great. Now Babylon, you guys maybe know, is an ancient kingdom, it was a city. It was actually a city that God used to judge the people of Israel when they were led into captivity and exile, like they were taken from their homes. It was the kingdom of Babylon that God used. And so Babylon was representative of this kind of brutal, corrupt, idolatrous culture that the people of God, it was even their punishment. They had to live in this culture. That was where Daniel was in exile. That's where the book of Daniel was written. And even in the book of Daniel, we have a a mirror of chapter 17 and 18 in these symbols, and the the beast and the horns and all of that. So Babylon the great. And there's different perspectives historically throughout church history as to who is this prostitute? right? There's different perspectives. Some believe that it was just a specific uh, moment in time. And John's referring to Rome. And that's true. Rome was like the great, it was Babylon in a sense. People believe that, other people believe that Revelation, if you remember the historist perspective is that Revelation represents different stages in history, right? So like early on in Revelation is early church history. As you work through Revelation, it's kind of working its way through. So uh, some people believe that the Babylon the Great was actually the Roman Catholic Church. That was pretty popular in church history that the Roman Catholic Church had led people astray away from God. Another perspective that is how Brit has been teaching, and it's the futurist perspective, and that's that this is primarily about the future. Yes, this happened in a time in the past, but Revelation is primarily about what is going to happen. And so uh, Babylon the Great would represent, we don't exactly know, but the major empire, the major culture, like the city center at that time. And then the last perspective, the idealist, is that Revelation is kind of representative of all times for all people. So even it repeats itself. So yes, Babylon was that wicked nation in the past and now Babylon is, was Rome maybe at this time and Babylon is, is gonna be in every culture and every country that is against God um, and, and ultimately will be in the future. So those are kind of the different perspectives. But here's the point, regardless of who Babylon the Great represented in the past, present, or future, The reality is that we, as Christians, we must be aware of her sway for us right now, today, in our culture. We have to be aware that sin has an effect on our culture, our nation, not just as individuals, and not just Satan, but there's an entire stream that sin has affected, that things feel normal, like the stream, everyone's going this way. And we as Christians can just get in that stream and not really think anything's off or anything's weird. We look around and this seems to be normal. But Babylon the great, it's noticing that, wait, this isn't normal. This is a sinful culture. Yes, it may feel normal to us. It may be what everyone's doing, but this is not the way Jesus has called us to live. So that's Babylon the great, a couple different perspectives. And the, the last thing to notice, verse six, this is the pinnacle of her sin. It says she is drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is a picture of Babylon the the Great with her full influence. If she has full influence in a culture, it will be clearly anti-Jesus, anti-Christian. Christians will simply be killed. So that's obviously, it's not our culture is not there yet, but there are cultures in history and there are cultures even now where Babylon the Great has such sway that Christians are killed by the government. Culturally, that's just acceptable. And that, I mean, that's the ultimate sign. When, when Babylon, when sin as a structure takes over, that's how you know Christians are persecuted to the point of death. And then to get, a, we're gonna skip ahead and I just want you to get the la, another couple of pictures of who she is from chapter 18. In verse five, it says, her sins are heaped high as heaven, which is interesting. One commentator pointed out, do you remember the tower of what? Babylon. Babel, Babylon. They said, we're gonna get as high as heaven, we're gonna build a, t- a tower up to heaven. And in a sense, she fulfilled that, but with her sin. Her sin has reached up to heaven. Another, verse seven says she glorified herself and lived in luxury. In her heart, she says, mourning I shall never see. Verse 13 of chapter eight, she trades in many things, including slaves, that is human souls. When Babylon the Great has an influence in a culture, human lives are not valuable. In our culture, there are areas where human life is not valuable. And then in verse 23, it says, all nations were deceived by her sorcery. So that's a picture of Babylon the Great. Some of these symbols represented in 17 and 18, Babylon the Great. We're gonna continue to read. So that's Babylon the Great. They're gonna introduce a couple more characters. So let's look at verse seven and eight to get a couple more. So the angel says, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose name have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So another character here is the beast. It's not a new character. It was in chapter 13. We studied the beast. If you remember the beast, we've been understanding as the antichrist, this world ruler who leads the people of the world away from God and the people of God. And if you remember, it says uh, who was and is not and is about to rise. So in chapter 13, the beast received a mortal wound of sorts. Like the world thought, oh my gosh, this leader is going to die. And then he he seems, he appears to come back to life. And in a sense, that's him mimicking the resurrection. I was reading another commentary and it points out that the, the best way Satan tries to deceive people is by copying God, by mimicking him only counterfeit. He has nothing original to offer. He has nothing truly good to offer us. He simply steals from who God is distorted, twisted. And that is who Satan is. And that is what the beast has done. And then we see the people. The people were marveling at the prostitute and they were marveling at the beast. They've become, it says, drunk with the wine of the prostitute's sexual immorality. They're they're the ones whose names haven't been written in the book of life. So that's seven and eight, and we're gonna get a couple more symbols. The scenario begins to unfold. So we have the prostitute, we have the beast and the people. Let's look to verse nine. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, the beast had seven heads, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom who have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received their royal power, but are about to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And one more verse, these are of one mind. They hand, so this is the kings, they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So we're getting a few more symbols here. We have seven heads, first of all, right? And the seven heads, it's helpful, John just says, those are seven mountains. If you, it's, that's not very subtle to the readers at this time. It was known that the city of Rome, within the city, there were seven hills, seven mountains. So he's clearly talking about Rome here, definitely talking about Rome. But at the same time, if you look at verse 10, so he says nine, he's saying seven heads are seven mountains. And verse 10, it says, they are also seven kings. And just a quick side note on understanding Revelation, this also is key, because it's one symbol, two meanings. And what it's saying is a lot of times we, we just want a really simple, like, tell me the answer. What does Revelation mean? But even in its design, the symbols mean multiple things. So Babylon the Great, yes, she was then, and she is now, and she is to come. It's, the symbols have multiple meanings, and that's okay. We just had to get used to that. That's, that's what the symbols mean in, in the book of Revelation, And so these seven heads are also seven kings, probably of Rome, but uh, people also believe maybe just world rulers throughout history. So, um, and that's just a quick refresher. I had a slide on that. Symbols on Revelation. They often have a specific meaning for the past. They are also applicable to us today. And then finally, they're speaking about what is going to happen in the future. So then the last uh, symbol we have here is the beast with 10 horns. Okay, so seven kings, seven heads, the beast with 10 horns. And it helps us say, by knowing it says that the 10 horns are 10 more kings that haven't come yet. So it's obviously pointing to the future. Some think maybe it was Roman kings. Some have tried to figure out who, like maybe different Caesars or whatever. Um, but what pretty much everyone understands these are gonna be word, world. It's hard world rulers throughout history. So a couple more players. And then verse 14 is summing up what is about to happen. So the beast and the kings, verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. So we've seen this lamb before in Revelation. Who's that lamb? That's Jesus. He, he conquers the beast and the kings. That actually, this is a great battle when the beast leads all the kings of the earth. They hand over all their power to him and they literally make war on Jesus and the people of Jesus. And that's a great battle. You remember what that is? Battle of Armageddon. And that's actually next chapter. So we're gonna get that. It's gonna be exciting. So we see that the lamb conquers them. But notice this. Notice after Jesus conquers them, it says those with him are called chosen and faithful. Those are the people of God. That is us, Lord willing. We have been called out of the world to belong to Jesus. We've been chosen by God, not because of anything that we did good, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus was gracious to us. And if we have been called and chosen, we will remain faithful to Jesus. Even in a culture swimming against Jesus, we will remain faithful to Jesus. And I love the phrase, I love the way that it puts it, those with him. If you wanna know how to make it through this world and be faithful, you need to be with Jesus, right? It's not enough to simply come to church once a week. You have to be with him, like cling to him every day of your life. Be with him, be with him in his word, be with him in in prayer and in his presence. That is the one sure way that you're gonna make it to the end is by being with Jesus, And so then notice what happens. They make war on the lamb. And then verse 15 and 16, something happens to the prostitute. It says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So that's saying that Babylon has influence on all people, all nations, all languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So this is an interesting kind of turn of events. We have this prostitute. She's committing adultery. She's leading these kings astray. But then the kings turn on her. They turn on this great city. They turn on the culture that they were getting so much wealth from. They turn on her. And the very ones who benefited from her, they, they ultimately make her desolate and naked. It says her flesh is devoured. She's burned up with fire. So we see there will come an end to Babylon the great. There will come an end to cultures and cities that influence people away from God. And interestingly enough, God uses evil, the beast and kings to to bring about his purpose. And notice, and I'll read a couple verses in chapter 18 describing her fall. It says in verse eight, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then in verse 17, listen to this, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So it's clear that Babylon the great, she will fall in a single hour. The the wealth of the world, the, the, the single greatest culture, it will crumble, it will crumble. And then notice, it is so amazing. In verse 17 and 18, what is really happening under the surface? Yes, the beast and the kings turned on her, but in 17 and 18, we get a deeper picture. It says, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And that woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So yes, it was the beast and the, and the kings that ultimate, that, or that, that tore her apart, that ravished her, that took away all her wealth. But below that, who is really in control? It says God. God has put it in their hearts to c- carry out his purpose. The reality is nothing happens in this world apart from the sovereign hand of God. Even the downfall of empires. It's not like they're off in a distance and God just lets, like he is intimately involved. The Bible says even a sparrow that nobody knows or cares about, doesn't fall apart from God being there. We read throughout the Bible that Satan himself has to get permission from God to do anything, right? He wanted to torment Job and he had to get permission from God and God limited. He said, no, you can't do that. This is what you can do. And God knew all along that he's gonna use this for good. We see this ultimately in the cross, right? We see ultimately that Satan, what he thought, imagine being Satan, and you just murdered the son of God. Like there has never been a worse evil in the history of the universe. The innocent lamb of God was slain and Satan thought he had won. Yet who is our God that at the very moment Satan thought he had won, he had actually been defeated. He actually had been conquered, that Jesus defeated him. That is who God is, that is how he works. He uses evil and suffering and sin, even wicked cultures and nations and empires he uses their evil for his purposes and he works them for good. And so we have to, we have to remind ourselves: okay, what am I worried about right now? Like, what, like there are legitimate things in our life. What are we worried about? Start big picture. What in the world are you worried about? What in politics like, freaks you out? What in the economy makes you worry? What conflict or war or struggle between two nations, like what makes you afraid? What makes you worry? What future election stresses you out. If this were to happen, it would be the end. Think about that. Then think about specifically in your life, what finances, what relationships, may maybe what, what in your parents or what in your kids stresses you and, and you think, is there any hope? Listen, God is sovereign. He is in control. If he is in control over nations, he is in control of your life. Jesus says, you don't have to even worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. And the reality is that the flow of our culture, Babylon the Great, has such an influence in us that we are so worried about the details of our life. We are so worried about the economy. We are so worried about our success and our financial gain and our popularity. We are so worried. But the truth is God is in control. He is in control of things. And so we see the end of 17, Babylon the Great is destroyed. And we're going to turn into chapter 18 now, and chapter 18 is going to be the world mourning the loss of Babylon the Great. But before we do that, I want you to imagine something real quick. Okay, imagine, slow break, imagine you're on the Titanic, okay? You, you got tickets to the Titanic, it's going to be like the, the best cruise ever, it's the most amazing ship, they had all these amenities, you're on the Titanic, and one day, you're just, like, getting out of the pool, and you're heading over to the buffet, and you're thinking about what you're going to wear, new clothes for dinner, and you're just like, man, this is great. And someone, like, pulls you aside, and, and they're really worried, and they say, hey, listen, I'm, like, I'm kind of a science person, and I've been noticing the speed we're going, and it's, I'm kind of nervous. And actually, we're heading into this area where I know there's huge icebergs, and if we continue at this rate, like, we're going to be in danger and you're thinking, like, you don't, you don't understand. This is the Titanic. The greatest engineers built this. It's literally unsinkable. Like, you have nothing to worry about. And then he's saying, no, listen, and he's trying to show you his charts and explain, we're in danger here. And you, you start to fear, and you're wondering, man, if, what if he's right? Because if he's right, it changes everything, right? You, you probably aren't just going to continue on and go to dinner and worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat. You actually are going to start thinking about, like, man, do I have a life raft? Like, are there any possessions that I wanna try and bring with me? Like, what if we're going down? It would completely change that trip for you. And the reality is, every nation that has ever existed is a Titanic of its own. Every nation that has risen has fallen, every single one. And I promise, unless Jesus comes back, every nation currently will fall. Every culture has risen and it's fallen. Roman Empire, 1,500 years and it's gone. We like the the British Empire. Literally, hundred years ago, just had most of the world in its possession, and now it's a little island. Even us, America, every culture, every country, it will fall. And the reality is, Jesus is lovingly warning us in the Book of Revelation, saying, "Hey, this is how it's going to happen. It is going to end. This boat is going to sink, and we have to make a choice. Do we want to ignore Him and just continue to to do our thing and enjoy as much as we can?" Or do we wanna heed his advice? Because if this boat really is going down, it's gonna change how we live, right? We, we shouldn't just go on living however we want and eating and drinking and wearing and pursuing wealth and all the things this world has to offer if this is not all there is. And so chapter 18, we see two different responses to this warning, two different responses to the fall of Babylon. The first is gonna be the people of the world who benefited from Babylon, and then we're gonna see the people of God. So let's look at the first three chapters of, or three, first three verses of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations, including us, have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So it's going to happen. Babylon will fall. And notice that it says all the nations, that's us. We We wouldn't be faithful to the word of God, to the book of Revelation if we weren't willing to say how is Babylon affecting me, affecting my culture, affecting my country, affecting how I live and what I desire for my life. It says all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then the next verse, this is the most critical verse for us this morning. This is what Jesus has to say. In the midst of all this chaos, Jesus speaks to us, his people. And he says in verse four, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It is so good for Jesus to to call out from heaven and warn and, and say, hey, this boat is sinking. Come out. Come out, lest you, sh- you take part in her punishment, in her sins. Jesus, because He loves us, is saying, "Go away from this culture, do not take part in it. And He's been saying that God has been saying this to His people throughout all time. There's verses, Old Testament and New. We're going to read a couple. Look in Isaiah 52. God says this to His people. He says, I think we have it up there, maybe soon. Isaiah 52:11. God says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And then one book later, Jeremiah, God says a similar thing. He says, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. And then in the New Testament, God is similarly calling his people out of Babylon and he says, therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And finally, First John, we're familiar with this passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So Jesus here is calling us out of Babylon and he's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to set apart ourselves in such a way that we don't participate in the sins, that we don't even touch the the sins of our culture. He knows that in every culture, every time, Babylon has sway and so he says, come out of her. And sometimes that's confusing, right? There's, there's two kind of different extremes. Some people can say, okay, that means we need to go live in the desert with only Christians and we can't ever interact with the world. And then other people say, no, we're on mission. And so we got to like really be in the world to save us. That's kind of two extremes, right? And if, if we want to know what does it look like to be in the world, but not, but not a part of who Babylon is, not touching the things of Babylon, there's actually someone who did that. We have an example Jesus. When Jesus came, he was the perfect example. He left heaven and came to Babylon. And he actually even loved the sinners. And he loved the prostitutes. And he loved the tax collectors. He was radical. In fact, when Jesus touched unclean things, guess what happened? He made them clean. But Jesus actually didn't sin himself. He lived a perfect, holy life. And yet he was engaged with the world in such a way that he purified it and he made it clean. And so for us Christians, we can't just move away and not interact with any Christians. If, if we as a church were to go move away in the desert, guess what that society would be like? It would be sinful because we would be there. It's not gonna help if we're there. But if we're in the world to such an extent that if we're being led astray and led into temptation, then we're not doing it right either. We are called to be in the world, interacting with the lost world, but not giving in, not being a part of, of the sinful structures, not being a part of the stream of culture. So Jesus calls his people out. And so again, to be faithful to this text, to be faithful to Christ, we have to ask ourselves: like where is Babylon in our culture? Where's Babylon in my life? Like where is Babylon has sway in the things that I desire? When I see something, do do, do I want it? How do I react to it? What am I doing online? What am I looking at? What am I desiring to possess, to obtain? What kind of clothes? What kind of riches? Because the reality is Babylon has sway in our culture. Our culture says things like your desires are ultimate. If you desire something sexually, physically, materially, go for it. That's okay. Don't deny yourself, right? Trust your heart. Our culture says that our body is our own. We can do with it whatever we please. It's not the Lord's. It's not our spouse's. It's mine. Our culture, maybe the heaviest, goes so far to to display that children are not a blessing but a curse, to the extent that we would be willing to kill our children if we don't want them, if they're not going to fit conveniently into our life. Our culture says more money is always better. Why would you not take a raise? Why would you not take a job that pays more money? Our culture says that more stuff is always better. Our culture says the church and Jesus, if anything exists to serve me, I don't have to lay my life down for the church. I don't have to lay my life down for my spouse or for the body of Christ. And that that sounds like Babylon, sexual immorality, material possessions in abundance and ultimate denial of God and his ways. You guys, our culture is affected by Babylon. And Jesus graciously calls us, the church this morning, through his word to come out of her. He says, Flee. Don't take part in her sins. Because he loves us, he's saying, Don't take part in the judgment that is coming. For inasmuch as you are in, you will suffer her punishment and her judgment. And the reality is, I mean, we are all guilty. We all have blood on our hands. We have all failed Christ. We have all given in to temptation. So the first thing to remember, and this is so good, is that Jesus loves us loves the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors like us. He loves us enough to lay his life down, to spill his blood that we could be clean. And yet the same Jesus who saves us of our sins, he doesn't save us so that we can go live however we wanna live. Like what was his death for then? He saves us and calls us out of Babylon, out of sin, out of temptation to follow him. Jesus calls us, he rescues us. It's it's his grace to say, stop sinning because it will only lead to death. Pull away from Babylon because it will only lead to punishment. So then we, we see Jesus, he calls his people, and then we're gonna skip to verse 19, and we're gonna see the people of the world mourn the loss of Babylon. We're gonna read ten verses here, nine through nineteen. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit it says, God speaking, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour... All this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. And notice, real quick, verse 14. This captures that entire passage. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. Their, their souls were satisfied with the things that Babylon produced. And note, these weren't evil things. Like, Did you notice that long, like detailed list of everything she sold? Gold, silver, jewels, cloth, wood. These aren't, these aren't bad things. These aren't things that are wicked things. The problem was that their soul longed for those things. The problem was they wanted to be satisfied in the fruit of Babylon. And they should have longed for better fruit because there is only one, one person that satisfies the soul and that is Jesus. No amount of anything you can acquire in this life will satisfy your soul. And even if you get it, even if you have every material possession you could ever want, They had it. Even if you had it, guess what? It's not going to last. There will come a day when that's going to happen to you. Either it's taken from you or you are taken from it. You will not have your material possessions forever. Only Jesus, amen? Only Jesus satisfies your soul. And he doesn't just satisfy it today and maybe not tomorrow. He satisfies it tomorrow and he will satisfy it perfectly in eternity. Like unlike anything else. And because they they missed out on Christ and were seeking satisfaction in these things, their souls mourned at the loss of Babylon. And look at the difference in one verse, verse 20. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So I wanna ask you, if you were to lose everything, what would your reaction be? Would it be the reaction of the merchants of the world or would it be the reaction commanded in verse 20, rejoice over her? That speaks a lot to our heart and what matters most to us. Could you actually rejoice in the loss of your possessions, the loss of this world and what it has to offer? If our economy collapsed, could your heart say, Jesus is enough for me? In fact, Jesus is even better for me now. I have less to distract me. Or, or is your heart tempted to mourn the loss of your things? And then let's end and look at the last five verses, verse 21. 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will not be found in you. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So there's coming a day when there will be no more music in Babylon. But there's also coming a day when we as the nations will be gathered singing around the Lamb. Amen? There's coming a day when there's no more lamps shining in Babylon, but there's also coming a day when the presence of God will outshine the sun. We won't need a sun anymore. The lamps aren't shining, but Jesus will be our lamp. He will be, his presence will be like the sun on our skin. There's coming a day, there's no more bridegroom, no more bride to celebrate in Babylon. Yet in two chapters, there's coming a marriage supper of the lamb. When Jesus comes for us, his bride, to take us to be with him forever and ever to satisfy our souls, unlike anything Babylon has to offer, and until that day comes, and how good does that day sound? Until that day comes, the call on our life is verse four of chapter 18. Come out of her, lest you partake in her sins and share in her plagues. Hear that as Jesus' loving words to you because he loves you. Come out of her. Don't take part in her sins. Don't take part in her punishment. And as a Christian, my hope and prayer is that the spirit is speaking to you, man, there are areas of my heart that are tempted towards Babylon. There are areas that my heart wants the beauties, the possessions, the sexual intimacy offered by Babylon. There's areas of our own hearts. My prayers, as spirit would reveal that because as Christians, we do, we have the flesh and we are tempted. And as we go into worship, we have an opportunity church to obey this text to come remind ourselves to take of the elements and remember Jesus' body and blood was poured out to forgive and cleanse us for how we have not come out of Babylon, for how we have given into temptation. So I encourage us to do that this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if, if you don't even know if you believe this, hear the gracious words of Jesus. You're in Babylon and it's going to sink. It's going to be destroyed. And Jesus is graciously saying, come out. Don't take part in that punishment. Don't don't take part in these temptations. Don't desire the things that are only temporal. Jesus is calling to you. There is no hope unless you turn to him, but he graciously loves you and he died for you. That way you can leave Babylon and have a true satisfied soul for all of eternity. It's not too late for any of us this morning to come to Christ, to leave, to flee from our temptations and to enjoy, to get on our faces and worship. If you have things in your life that feel like a stronghold, we have a prayer team that would love to pray for you. If you wanna know more about Jesus, what does it mean to know Jesus? Come, come seek prayer. We have communion up here and we have carpets for you to get on your face and worship Jesus. Be satisfied with him, Amen. Jesus, we thank you for your gracious words to us, God, to come out to flee from Babylon. Help us, Jesus, to believe you when you speak loving warnings to us that it won't go well for us if we remain in Babylon. Lord, help us to leave, to flee, to enjoy you and you alone, God. Help us understand even what it means that that difficult balance to be here, to be in the world, to be in the coastlands where there are many temptations and where Babylon has many, much sway over us. Lord, help us to understand how to be faithful to you, Jesus, how to be faithful to you on mission and faithful to you in holiness and in righteousness, God. Spirit, come, cut away our flesh, reveal our sin, reveal the areas that we maybe don't even notice that we are just going along the stream of Babylon, Lord. And I just pray that as we seek your face now that you would come, your presence would be so real and thick, Lord, that we would experience the joy of being in your presence, that this morning we would taste and see you and how much better you are than the fruit of anything this world has to offer. You are better, Jesus. And so I ask of you, Lord, help us to taste you this morning. Help us to experience you for, for ourself, that you are better. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you loved us first. Help us to worship you now at your feet, Jesus. Amen.